Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of our pastors here, and we are continuing our Gospel of John teaching series, which, if you're like me, has been a, a real gift, and today's text is no different. So I want to begin uh, by reading it straight through. It is John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read it in one shot, and hopefully as I read it, this doesn't just feel like a, oh, this is what you're supposed to do uh, as you start a message. Like, let's try to actually imagine Jesus himself speaking these words to his followers and the Spirit today to us, speaking them to us here in this room tonight. So John chapter 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. It's a gift to be given a text like this, because as I'm reading it, as you're hearing it, do do you see how almost every single one of these verses is a sermon unto itself? Which is a gift, but also sort of a downside, because that means I'm going to have to choose to emphasize some things over others. So hey, you could stick around for the extra hour, and Pastor Freddie and I will unpack that. But let's pray as we begin and allow God himself to highlight something for us, where we are, how we got here, whatever we've carried into this room with us, let's ask him to do that work by his spirit for his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that we have these words and that Jesus said them and that the realities that they reflect are available to each one of us in this room tonight. So I ask that this time would be so faithful 
to what you've said here. And so helpful to each one of us. Thank you for being with us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking about, well, how do you, how do you take this and how do you begin with it? And so my, my mind went to the, the season we're in. And did you know that Christmas is coming? Oh, it was a pretty lackluster response. And you know what? The four o'clock was the same, so we are a church full of Grinches. That's great. Um, well, here's, here's the thing. Uh, my pre-Northview life, which was only about eight months ago, um, Northview was known for something with me and my family. See, there's something big going on in the office this week, I've heard, that us as a staff, we are going to do some things behind the scenes that are going to put us on a trajectory to enter full-on Christmas mode here at Northview this week. I don't know what all that means yet. I'm excited for it because what Northview was known for to me and my family was the church that had really great Christmas lights in the parking lot. My kids would always point it out and it's like, that's the church with the Christmas lights. This is great. This is where we're headed. As I was thinking about the whole Christmas season and you know what Northview was known for before and how that connected to Christmas, I was thinking about this text and I realized on a more serious level, a question that, that, that I've been mulling over since I've been here. And the question is this, what are we known for? Like, what, what is Northview known for? What, what, are, what, are, what are you, as someone who has anchored your life here, or for however long you have and for however long you will be here, like, what are you known for as someone attached to this church? And I wonder how people who are outside this room would, would answer that question. Like, if, if somebody who, you know, doesn't, you know, interact with us a ton, but knows enough to be asked the question, I wonder what their response would be. And would it be something more substantial than just Christmas lights, I would hope it would be something to do with us accomplishing our mission, our specific mission. This is how we, we understand. This is how companies and organizations, famous ones, this is how they are known for. They are known for accomplishing their mission. And even if we couldn't articulate what that mission actually is, they're known for it. For example, let me give you a few. Um, YouTube, did you know that their mission, they have said, is to give everyone a voice and show them the world? So when you think of YouTube, you think something like that. It seems like anybody can make a video. Anybody can do, post anything on there, and it seems like we're seeing a lot more of the world. They're accomplishing their mission, and that's what they're known for, which may not be a great thing all the time, but that's what it is. How about another one? How about Walmart? They say that their mission is to save people money so they can live better. So what do we know Walmart for? Selling cheap stuff. And is it making your life better? I, I don't know, but it's, that's, they're accomplishing it. McDonald's, maybe one more. Their mission, I don't know if you know this, is to make delicious, feel-good moments easy for everyone. <laughs> and I can tell some of you have tested that with repeated experience, as have I, and we know that that, that is true. It may be not easy on our bodies, but easy for everyone. Feel-good moments, great. What about Northview? As a church, we have said that our mission is to help people become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. And I'm, like, I'm here for that. The, the problem is, I, I don't know if we always think about what that means in like, practical, everyday terms. And so, good news, we've come today to a text that I think provides a very clear picture of what a deeply rooted follower of Jesus looks like. So much so that I think our mission statement could actually say maybe synonymously, we exist to help people abide in Jesus. Why? Because if you abide in Jesus, you will have life 
and bring life to others. What this text is hopefully going to reinforce for us today is that discipleship is not just a matter of simply acknowledging who Jesus is. It's having Jesus deeply connected to our inner lives, which hopefully will spill out onto the lives of others. So I wonder when people think about Northview, even if they don't have the same words as John 15 or deeply rooted, I wonder if these are some of the ideas that they would think about. So what I want to do in our, in our time is I want to ask four questions of this text and unpack three application categories. Hopefully this will be a helpful way to get on board with Jesus' vision of what his followers are all about. So here's my four questions. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the true vine? What exactly should we be thinking when we see the word abide? What fruit is God wanting to produce? And what can we actually do to abide in Jesus? So question one, we'll go back to the verse, first verse of this chapter to, to start probing around there. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself this? I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Well, one of the things that John's gospel is known for, and if you've been tracking with this series, you'll know he's made several key statements about the identity of Jesus. And Jesus always starts them with, with the phrase, I am. Up until this point, he's made six key I am statements. And this is the seventh and final one of John's gospel. I am the true vine. Here's, here's what's interesting about this. If, if we were there, like the night Jesus said this to his followers, and if we were steeped in a knowledge of the Old Testament, perhaps like to a higher degree than we are, maybe like the disciples themselves were, I think we'd be quick to pick up how familiar and maybe provocative this term is. Like you comb through the Old Testament, places like Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, or track with our reading plan, you get to Ezekiel and you, you're seeing this language, you discover that the vine was a common symbol for Israel, the covenant people of God. But what we need to see here, though, is that this isn't a continuation of using the, this term, same one, in the same exact way, but instead of casting it in a whole new light. Jesus is not doing what I saw a lot of restaurants doing in my time in New York this summer. My wife Janelle and I, we were there for a few days in July. There was a bunch of restaurants, uh, pizza places, part of the reason I personally chose to go to New York. I just wanted to see for myself. All of them had the same language. They were using the same terms. Come here for the best pizza in the city, in the world, in wherever. Just the best, the best, the best. So we're seeing it I, of course, had to investigate for myself to know which one of you guys is telling the truth. Like, I, I just got to know. For, and, and you know what was weird? All of them were telling the truth. It's like, man, this one is the best. This one is the best. This one is actually the best. That's not what Jesus is doing here, though. He's not taking the same term that was applied to Israel to say the same things about himself, boring it that way. He's actually telling them something quite opposite, in fact. What's striking about this is that every reference to Israel in the past as the vine highlights something, a failure to produce good fruit. Paired with this fruitlessness is the announcement of God's sorrow, God's judgment. So fast forward to Jesus on this particular night, hours away from his arrest, his torture, his execution, he tells his followers, I am the true vine, the true vine. In contrast to the failure of God's chosen people, Jesus will be the one that bears good fruit. 
He's the one to whom God's purposes with Israel pointed. And now Jesus is saying, look, the purpose God had was to bless the whole world through this people bearing that type of fruit. They didn't do it. And now it's finally going to be possible. It's going to happen. The people of God are going to be the ones that can actually do this because they're now going to be connected to the one who is able to, at last, be unfailing in accomplishing God's good purposes on earth. What this should tell us is that fruit is what occurs when we are connected to Jesus. Abide in him, you'll have life, and you'll bring that life to others. But that brings me to my next question. Well, what does this word abide mean then? It seems like it's, a, it's, it's leading to something very important. What does it mean? Well, we first run into it in the command of 15 verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I was pleased to discover that the Greek word for abide here is the word meno. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great on this particular weekend if we started to put the meno back in Mennonite brethren as a people? Because this is a very rich word. The, the English Standard Version I read translates abide, takes meno, turns it to abide, but it can also be translated as remain to stay, to continue with, to stick with, to make one's home with, to be in close, settled union. However we translate it, we need to understand it as the non-negotiable requirement of what it means to follow Jesus in loving union. Renowned missionary teacher and, and author, uh, Andrew Murray, he was captivated by the realities of this word and what it invites us into. And in one of his books, he talks about how during the life of Jesus on earth, when he, when he was calling people to relationship with himself, he used the phrase, follow me. But here in John 15, when about to leave for heaven, he used a different phrase in which they're more intimate and spiritual union with himself in glory could be expressed. And that chosen phrase was, abide in me. Listen to what Murray writes about this. It is to be feared that there are many earnest followers of Jesus from whom the meaning of this word with the blessed experience it promises is very much hidden. While trusting in their Savior for pardon and for help, and seeking to some extent to obey him, they've hardly realized to what closeness of union, to what intimacy of fellowship, to what wondrous oneness of life and interest he invited them when he said, abide in me. This is not only an unspeakable loss to themselves, but the church and the world suffer in what they lose. I think what the Lord's deepened in, in, in me in sitting in this passage, I think, I think Murray is so right. And I think one of the reasons he's right is because of what Jesus says immediately following this. In verse five, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in Jesus and you will have life and bring life to others, don't, and you won't. So again, I have a question, a third question to ask. So, okay, well, what, what fruit then 
is God wanting to produce? It seems like this is pretty important and central here. It's what abiding leads to. What is he wanting to produce? Well, we've seen, first of all, that bearing fruit is something that Jesus does. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, we're on track. Well, what else? Well, not only is bearing fruit something that Jesus does, it's something that Jesus desires. And this isn't like a casual, like low-level, like want, like that would be nice if you guys did this. Like I have a whole bunch of these types of wants, like kind of low-level, like, yeah, it'd be good if I had them. Like this past week, and, and I was reminded of this because my, we do this sort of like sibling draw, and it's like who's going to buy what for who for Christmas and surprise them. So it'd like, be helpful if you had a list, and so we know, you, you know we're going to be somewhere in the ballpark of the things that you desire and want and would be helpful to you. So I make my list, and there's a lot of things on there that I'm like ashamed that are on there. Like for example, one of them is a barbecue brush. Now, if, if, if I were you and, and I heard that from me, I would be, wanting, you know, I'd be sitting in the front row going like, lame. <laughs> like, my kids too, they're like, dad, dad like, what's on your list? Because they're, they're very keenly aware of what's on their list. And they're going, dad, what's on yours? And it's like, uh, barbecue brush? And they're like, what? what? And I have it there because over the last year, I know it would it'd be helpful to me. I know it would be probably good for my barbecue, but I haven't prioritized spending money on it. I haven't done much to do it. So I throw it on there because I don't have a ton of ideas. And it's like, yeah, it'd be nice if I had that. This is different though, when it comes to Jesus and bearing fruit. It's not like Jesse's Christmas wish list. That may be how I feel about a fresh barbecue, but it's not how Jesus feels about bearing fruit. It's something he deeply and seriously desires. Did you notice 15 verse 2? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What about 15, 16? If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. Like God is seriously committed to this. Like, fruit is very important to him. Fruit that endures. Because we also see in verse 16, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should what? Go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So we're, we're getting closer to answer this question. Okay, fruit is something Jesus does, something Jesus desires, something Jesus wants to endure, but, but we're not there yet. Like, well, what actually is it? So because we don't have a ton of time, I want to suggest that we understand fruit as an umbrella term for all that loving God and loving others entails. Fruit then is our experience of life with God and bringing that life to others as Jesus does that through us. I mean, scholars have tried to pinpoint specifics of what this fruit is, and we could make a case for some of them here. Knowledge of God, maybe, if we look at verse 15. Love, if we look at 9 through 14. Joy, if you look at verse 11. Witness to the world, if you look at verse 16. We could also go outside of this passage and import other New Testament ideas that use the same language. Maybe you're thinking the fruit of the Spirit, pretty obvious one, and the list of characteristics that the Spirit produces there. But whatever specifics we nail down, they're all categorized generally as that which brings glory to God through people experiencing union with him and helping others to do the same experience that union for themselves. But as I look at verse 5, I, I, I encountered a bit of a tension, though. Like, if, if we look at it again, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And if we've defined what abiding is a little bit and fruit a little bit, I found myself wondering, okay, this is what Jesus said he's going to do if we abide. But what about all those like Christian disaster stories? What about, the, what about the people that, and maybe you've been influenced by them too. Like I think of several people in, in my past who have influenced me greatly, written profound, helpful books, preached excellent sermons, led churches, and at the same time secretly lived lives of sin. And in some cases, sin that impacted people. And in some cases, impacted them to a criminal degree. Certainly, this had to have impacted their abiding in Jesus. But it sure seemed like good things were happening. Like their churches were growing. Their teaching was solid. Guys like me were influenced for the, for the better. But under the surface, what was their abiding actually like? And I think this text reminds me, okay, per- perfect abiding, that, that's not the point. Yeah, yeah, it sure seems like some of the fruit of the examples that I've, I've thought about, seems like some of their fruit is a little bit tainted now in light of what's come out. But the impact is still there, and I think it's because Jesus can still produce and bear fruit. It's a good thing that he is the vine and that, that we are not. But at the same time, I don't want that to become an excuse. I think there is an invitation to a better way. Like rather than using Jesus' activity as an excuse, it's pushing me, like as one of your pastors, to consider what what would happen if I had a heightened level of intentionally doing what John 15 is saying. Because here's the thing. Earlier this week, I think it was like Tuesday, I'm standing out in the parking lot here, uh, and it occurred to me, that, you know, I'm in my, like, 11th year as a pastor. I know I'm going to be preaching on the weekend. Like, it would have been somewhat easy for me to get into the study, sit down, you know, put some phrases together, craft a message that God could use, could bear fruit, so to speak. But very few in this room would know any, by any means the state of my abiding in Jesus as I did so. Again, it's pretty easy, I think, to rely on our experience or our resources or our systems to be the things that bring about our effectiveness or our productivity as a church. Like we, like we live here in, in Canada in 2023, in, in many ways, the best resourced era of the church ever. Like think of the training we have available to us, the technology we have, like the financial power that we hold. Like we're living in a time where we're basically seeing the best version of the church that we can create with our own efforts and our own strategies. And there's some amazing things to to be grateful for and to celebrate with this. But at the same time, is all of that not still incredibly insufficient for the needs that are out there? Are we not aware of some of them, how enormous they are, how overwhelming they are? The rampant loneliness and isolation that people feel. The needs of the poor. The breakdown of family units. The addiction to self, self-actualization, self-gratification, self-glorification. The decline of, of church engagement. Reaching those far from Jesus, walking away from him. And perhaps also the need of the amount of Christians genuinely continuing with, staying with, remaining with, abiding in Jesus. If you, if you were on staff here with me, 
You'd often see me uh, tapping into an addiction that I have. Pause for dramatic effect as you theorize what that could be. Okay, what it is, is I often find myself using a whiteboard. And why I do this is because I'm like, I need to scribble, I need to draw, I need to visualize, I need to make charts, I need to try to think through with myself and my team, like, how are, how are we going to move things forward? Like, what are the things we need to see change? How can we maximize things? How can we reach new goals? But as I look at this text, here's the thing I'm convinced of increasingly. The deepest needs that we're facing, they're not going to be solved on the whiteboard of a well-resourced church. These, these are tools, sure, like, and we should be faithful to them. But disconnected from abiding in Jesus, oh, there's, there's an amount of real fruit that God, the vine dresser, desires for the world. For the people of God to, to be awakened, revived, stirred, to bring glory to God, experience life with him, helping others to experience that life, it is going to take Jesus himself bearing fruit. Which makes me wonder then, my last question, what can we actually do to abide in Jesus? Like, what are some of the adjustments that God might be nudging me to take, might be nudging you to take as someone connected to him? So here's three categories to think through. Next steps, applications, something that God might draw out of this text by, by organizing them in this way. One, a heightened level of obedient action. Or maybe, two, a heightened level of spiritual attention. Or three, perhaps, a heightened level of faithful prayer. And a governing idea to all of these, before we jump into them, is the love of God. 15 verse 9 said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Like, I don't know if you've ever used an illustration to help somebody understand something that's very complex. But Jesus, he provides an analogy. He breaks from this agricultural metaphor and he spells it out for him. You want to know what the love I have for you is like? It's the love the Father has for me. The love that Jesus has for you is the love the Father has for him. Like, isn't that the best illustration you have ever heard for the most important thing you could ever have? We don't want to just jump into these application steps, chase the fruit, but miss the vine. We don't want to fall into the trap of doing things for God and miss life with God. One that's characterized by unfathomable love. So let's keep that in mind as we go and look at these three possible adjustments we could make to our abiding. Adjustment number one, a heightened level of obedient action. So lest we miss this, verse 10 Verse 12 and verse 17, they all hit on the same themes. Keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. What's the commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Abiding for Jesus is characterized by obedient action. And I have found it fascinating that this type of action in this text is pushing us into obedience to God that is experienced by other people. Like there has been, I've noticed, a resurgence of content around these spiritual disciplines and around our personal practices that are essential to following Jesus. 
And even a way a lot of, you know, how we do church is, you know, me and Jesus developing a discipleship that, that pushes us further into our personal relationship with God. And I think that is amazing and worthy of a whole other message. But I wonder if, if we're just looking at this text, you're maybe as surprised as I am to see that the primary command around abiding is something that, while it is very personal, it's impossible to do in private. Like, like, be honest, how, how many of us see a sermon about abiding in Jesus and think, oh, like, oh, good, I, I wanted a sermon about that 12 minutes of my day with the Bible, my coffee, and my Spotify playlist, because I think I could take that to the next level. Like, I, I wonder if, if, if it's, it's so ingrained in us that it's all about things that are individual and yet Jesus doesn't head there. There's nothing wrong with those things. But when Jesus talks about abiding by obeying and obeying by acting and specifically acting by loving one another, we get a very different picture than we might expect. And maybe the most like, standout thing for me here is this corrective in the text that we can't really abide if we're not in community. Which, by the way, includes those we find Hard to love. A pastor I know recently said, union to God that does not draw me closer to others is not apprenticeship to Jesus, but a distortion of it. Why? Because, because our lived experience in Jesus ought to lead to loving exchanges with others. But see the theological order here. It's identity in Jesus first, activity through Jesus Second, the disciples aren't going to go love one another to become saved and spiritually clean before God. No, remember verse 3, before all of these commands, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And yet there is something that flows out of that. So for me, I'm, I'm looking at this going, okay, well, loving people, I think, is becoming increasingly connected to the words that I say about people and to people. And I wonder for, for us as we think about our exchanges, maybe even with people um, who aren't even in the room, but we're with others and we're going, man, that person, they, they frustrate me. They've actually sinned against me. I've got a justifiable reason to, to think what I'm thinking and feel how I'm feeling towards them. I wonder how we're talking about those who are sinning against us. More than that, I wonder how God might want us to talk to them, not just about them, the next time we see them, call them, text them. Like it's just one example. But I wonder what happens in and through our church as we adjust our abiding by increasing our actions obediently to Jesus' command of loving one another. But there's another adjustment we could make, and it's a heightened level of spiritual attention. If you look at verse 14 and 15, Jesus says something astounding that we're not going to have time to fully unpack, but he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. I wonder how much of an awareness we have of what God has said and is saying to us and trying to make known to us in real time, beyond like the fixed times, you know, that we're, we, we come and sit under his word, like beyond like this moment, beyond the Bible study moment, the community group moment, beyond all those, like how much of an awareness do we have of what he said and is saying? 
Because it seems to me from this text, abiding is characterized by spiritual attention. Which is very important because attentiveness to God is the seedbed for awareness of God. And I think it's safe to say we're all probably hijacking our awareness and attentiveness to God. Like I know for me, my attention spiritually has a direct correlation with how I use my phone. Like the higher my screen time, the, the lower my awareness of God. But Jesus calls us friends. He's wanting us to really know what he's about and what he is doing. So are we attentive to God like we are to a friend? I think spiritual attention happens increasingly in two ways. First, I think we need to make room for him. Like, it's weird, as I kind of audited my life this week, and went, where am I making room for God? The, the common excuses I give just seem so silly. Like, like the, the creator of the universe, he's never too distracted, too busy to make time for me. But I'm like, whew, Lord, like, you've seen, I've had like a pretty full week here. I'm t- like, I'm tired. I don't, have, I don't have time for you. Like, how are, how are things going, going for, for you? Like, he's, he's never that way with us. But we are with him. So one of the ways I'm trying to make room, and it's just, you know, like, audit my attention, make some concrete choices, maybe go for, a, like, regular prayer walks without my phone on me so that no app or person has access to my attention. Like, I don't know what it is going to be for you, but maybe you can start by asking a simple question. When in my day do I typically think about God the least? When in my day do I typically think about God the least or not at all? Maybe that will give you a starting point as it has for me. This line of thinking has reminded me that, yes, like I must make room for him. But I also must realize he's in every room with me. Like abiding, it's not limited to my personal devotional time before work or maybe for you before school or whatever else. It must include wherever we go. And when we give him our attention everywhere, we are available to him anywhere. And that leads me to a final piece. One of the byproducts, I think, of adjusting our abiding in this way is that heightened attention to God leads to increased alignment with God. And this becomes especially important in our practice of prayer, which is our third adjustment, a heightened level of faithful prayer. We see this a couple times in our passage, verse 7 and 8. You know, if, you, if my words abide in you, ask Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, regardless of your personal or current frequency, urgency, practice, or theological convictions about prayer, Jesus brings us in as an integral part of the conversation. Listen to to Andrew Murray again. It's not on screen. I just wanted us to hear this. Jesus does not think so much of prayer like we often exclusively do as a means of getting blessing for ourselves. No, he thinks of it as one of the chief channels of influence by which, through us, as fellow workers with God, the blessings of Christ's redemption are to be dispensed to the world. Abiding 
leads to alignment in asking things of God which ought to create in us an increased faithfulness of urgent and expectant prayer. So I wonder for you, is is your abiding stirring you to pray? Stirring you to pray faithfully, urgently, expectantly? Stirring you to pray in Jesus' name? Knowing that in Jesus' name is is not some sort of three-word add-on to whatever else you've said to God before that, where God's sort of sitting, listening, going, okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. And then in Jesus' name, oh, okay, hold on. Uh, he, they said the thing. They said the thing. Like, what, what, what was, on, what was in, in the list? No, it's not, it's not that. It's praying faithfully through the invitation of Jesus, with the access of Jesus, with the presence of Jesus, and the aligned will of Jesus. And as we pray in this way, he said he's going to work So as we do our part in these things, he's going to do his, and in so doing, God will receive glory, as verse 8 says, and we will receive joy. As verse 11 says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If we're not experiencing his joy, then I wonder if one of the reasons is that we're not experiencing Jesus' vision for prayer. It's forcing me to think, like if my life my prayer life was leaked somewhere out on the internet. Somehow somebody could get a transcript of it, print it out for people to read. What would they see me asking for? And how often would they see me asking for it? Like one of the things we know is that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We know that people come as God draws them. So if you had a transcript of my prayer life, would you see me praying for people knowing that? Who don't currently follow Jesus, would you see me using as many of you are using Those five by five by five cards? What would people see about my prayer life? What what is my prayer life? And what is yours? All of these adjustments I, I think about and I come back to my original curiosity. What is Northview known for? And what am I going to be known for? Known as deeply rooted? Known as abiding? Like, I think, it's, I think it's possible we're known for a lot of good things. It's possible we're known for being a people of the book. Like, I think that's probably true. But how far down the list of things that we are known for is something like prayer? How far down the list is loving people in community? How far down the list is focused and frequent attention to the presence of God? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure we're known as a praying people. Known, known for prayer means faithful in prayer, which leads to, to answers in prayer. I'm not sure we're known as as people consistently aware of God's presence and purposes like a friend. Known for this means deliberately making room for God and increasingly drawing near to him. I'm not sure we're known as as a loving people. Known for loving means obedient in action and laying our lives down for one another. And I wonder how much of this starts with me. And how much more fruit and love and joy and nearness to God is there to be experienced as we bring him glory and show ourselves to be his disciples? So I want to pray for myself. I want to pray for us. And maybe as I'm praying, maybe just talk to the Lord with something that you've heard from from these words of Jesus. Abide in me and you'll bear fruit. You'll have life. You'll bring life to others. Let me pray for us.
Lord, I, I know I have not wanted fruit to the degree that you have wanted it and can produce it. And I wonder if for, for us just in this room this Saturday evening, if there's something you are stirring us to individually, sure, as a community, sure, but Lord, we just want to abide in your love and do so by doing what you say. So for those who, who have a name of somebody who they know they have not been loving towards, for those who know their pace of life has prevented them and hijacked their attentiveness to what you're about in the world, for those who've maybe struggled to be faithful in, in prayer, pray that you would bear fruit in these areas as we seek you and draw near to you afresh today. And as we transition, Lord, to a moment of celebrating your sacrifice that has made this whole abiding possible, as we celebrate through communion, may it be a, an act we do together to experience you as your people, drawing near to you, knowing that you draw near to us. We see these things in your words, so we know as we pray this, they are in your name. Amen.